It is Sunday, March 8th, and I'm heading to Katie's house in Sacramento tomorrow for the busy week ahead. There are still tickets available for my free live speaking engagements on Wednesday and Thursday night of this week. If you're healthy and hand-washed, please join us. You can grab tickets at jcarroll.com forward slash events. You do not need to bring your ticket with you to the event. I'm merely trying to keep a head count so the libraries don't freak out. I likely won't pod tomorrow, um, but I hope to have updates for you on Tuesday. It's going to be a busy week, so I'm going to do them, try to fit them in everywhere I can. Otherwise, I'll be doing a lot of catch up next weekend. So stay tuned. All right. So here's today's topic. It's victims rights and Marcy's law. On my March 6th podcast, I talked about how our case currently is suffering from victim segmentation and that we didn't even realize that was happening based on the pending charges or not due to the stat or those charges that are that are not being charged because of the statute of limitations and or due to the jurisdiction where the D'Angelo crime occurred, we are all getting different information. I can't believe I forgot the biggest example of one more segment that got me so hot in April of 2019 that I could barely contain myself. That segment is the affluent white male from Orange County segment. If you read my blog, and you can do that by just going on my blog and putting in the last name Harrington, you might recall that my head exploded when the female victims were trotted out of the court. The hearing had just ended. I happened to stay back to talk to my prosecutor, but the other women were trotted out and were told to sit down behind Mr. Harrington, who was holding a press conference about the death penalty. They didn't know why they were asked to sit there. They certainly didn't necessarily agree with what he was saying. Some may, some may not have, but it didn't matter because they were never offered the opportunity to opt in or opt out of sitting there, unless, of course, you're Jennifer Carroll, who never conforms. And so I didn't sit there because I could tell something weird was happening. And when I came out and saw that, I thought, nope, I'm not just going to sign up for standing here behind this guy. I wasn't at first I wasn't even sure who the guy was in ten, until I put it together and thought, "Oh, that has to be Mr. Harrington. I had known about him since the crimes, the murders in Southern California had been put together, and I had known about the work he had done on the um prop sixty nine which I'll talk about here in just a second. So while we were not told this hearing, that hearing in April of twenty nineteen we were not none of the women were told that the hearing would be about the death penalty. We women, but clearly Mr. Harrington not only knew ahead of time, but he had time to write a speech, get on a plane, fly to Sacramento, introduce himself to none of us, set up before court was dismissed, and then be whisked away again without introducing himself to any damn one of us. In fact, HBO reminded me, and I know it's true, HBO has video of me basically mugging him because I had wanted to meet him for years. And I bet he still has no idea of who I was and why I jumped him with a giant hug. I felt so stupid later when I realized he really gave no fucks about any of us. And if you want to read more about this, like I said, go to my blog and search on Harrington. You'll see my rage and feelings very clearly there in that blog. I was super hot. Other other BS was happening in those two days as well. That's all in that blog. So you can go back and check that out. And I will very likely hit on those topics again as I make some other points about this insane case that we're all a part of. 
Okay, so needless to say, victims are being treated very differently, and it's really starting to get under our skin, which again brings me back to Marcy's Law. This is a victim's right law, rights law that we have in California, and several other states have adopted similar laws. And as we look at this, you should know the ACLU is opposed to these kind of laws, and I'll explain why at the end, because I think balance, as in all things, is really important, and there are always, as we all know as grown-ups, at least two sides to every story. So I want to make sure I bring the, the pros and cons of this law to light. Uh, first things first, here's the law that was approved. This law was approved by proposition in California. So here's how it works in California. We have something called the initiative process, and it bypasses our legislative lawmaking process when you use the initiative process. It, an initiative, once it gets enough signatures and goes through a much many machinations in the California State Attorney General's office, um, then becomes a proposition in which we all vote, for which we all vote or don't vote for. Um, it has had good and bad results, but invariably it's led to laws that aren't necessarily put through a really rigorous or robust process of analysis. So um, you've probably heard about this before, but very often these initiatives are sponsored by special interests that have the means to sponsor the initiative to get enough signatures to turn it into a proposition that then gets on the ballot. Then that same special interest can just dump money into the campaign to try to get it ratified during the election process by getting votes for their initiative, now a proposition. Um, in fact, Mr. Harrington was, was instrumental in funding and supporting an initiative in 2004 after learning of D'Angelo's crimes and finding out they were linked by DNA in Southern California. Uh, just to remind you, that was in November of 2004. The California voters passed that proposition, again, started as an initiative, became a proposition when it had enough signatures, Prop 69, the DNA Fingerprint of Unsolved Crime and Innocence Protection Act. And it was designed to expand and modify state law regarding the collection and use of criminal offender DNA. The DNA samples and uh, I'm sorry, DNA samples and palm print impressions. The initiative gave the Attorney General's Office, the California Department of Justice, and many other state and local agencies the responsibility of implementing this law. Now, like so many propositions that passed, the they are typically fought and they unfortunately get fought in court. And that's probably because we don't do enough due diligence before we turn it into a proposition to make sure it's actually legal. That's often been the case with propositions. And I know about this because guess what? Mom, Marge, worked in the initiatives um, office at the, at the Attorney General's office in Sacramento when she moved back up to Sacramento um, after Gary finished high school. So she would often share with me, not anything confidential, but share with me how the process worked and where the holes were and why it was actually potentially an expensive process for the state of California because these things have to be fought. So this DNA law was supported by this California, was fought in the California Supreme Court, and in a four to three ruling, the court left intact this voter approved law that required police to collect the DNA samples from anyone arrested on suspicion of committing a felony. Get this now, this is really important. It was to collect DNA samples from anyone arrested on suspicion of committing a felony sidestepping the questions about what it meant for the tens of thousands of people who are arrested but never charged or convicted. I'm going to let you go look at the nuance of this law. 
Uh, um, and I, I truly believe if you're convicted, you do give up the right to privacy and your information should be entered into this database. Otherwise, though, in my, from my point of view, prior to conviction, I believe a warrant should be required. In our case, D'Angelo's DNA was not in the system for many prior crimes. Remember, that was one of the first things Larry Poole down in Orange County Cold Case was doing, was trying to see if there was any kind of match. Instead, we needed a warrant to obtain the samples. I went back and looked, and ABC reported that we did have a warrant for the initial DNA collected to connect D'Angelo to the murders of my dad and Charlene, and it was taken off the driver's side car door handle of his car when he was parked in Hobby Lobby in Roseville. So he's parked at the Hobby Lobby. They went up and got the driver's side car door handle, did a swab, and got DNA. But they had a warrant. Authorities had been surveilling D'Angelo driving this vehicle. Then, again, with the warrant, additional DNA DNA samples were taken from D'Angelo's trash can outside his residence in Citrus Heights on April 23rd. That's probably the thing we've all heard about, certainly the one I've heard about. And again, the warrant says a piece of tissue was conclusive in linking the DNA from him to the, to the crimes, to Lyman and Charlene Smith. So if this is a fun fact. If, if you put your trash cans on the street, it's no longer considered your property. It's considered abandoned property and your rights are relinquished. So make a note if you're planning to be a criminal And if you're shaking your head because you already know this, I swear to God, I'm calling your mother. You're dangerous and we need to know what the hell you're planning. Okay, so enough about California's initiative process. Let's get back to Marcy's Law. This was passed in November of 2008 by the voters of the state of California. It was Prop 9 at the time, the the Victims' Bill of Rights Act. And what it was intended to do was provide all victims with rights and due process. So the law is providing victims, that's me, us, all of us, with the following rights. I'm going to go through these one by one. I might have a little bit of snark along the way. We'll see. Um, But the first one is to be treated with fairness and respect for her privacy and dignity of, for, I'm sorry, let me just start this over because I don't want to edit these while I read them. I want to read them succinctly and clearly. Number one, to be treated with fairness and respect for his or her privacy and dignity and to be free from intimidation, harassment, and abuse throughout the criminal or juvenile justice process. Okay, so we as victims should be free from intimidation, harassment, and abuse. And this is really important because there are some victims I know who have had some harassment, intimidation, and abuse. And they need to understand that even though they may not be part of the active case, they still should be considered a victim and that they have the right to be treated with fairness and respect. So make a mental note of that, those of you who are listening who I've spoken with and know that you've been harassed. Number two, to be reasonably protected from the defendant and persons acting on the behalf of the defendant. There you go. Right number two. That's right up there with the harassment. So you have the right to be reasonably protected. So if you feel you need protection, ask for it. In fact, on all of these, they say you have to speak up, ask for it. Number three, to have the safety of the victim and the victim's family considered in fixing the amount of bail and release conditions of the defendant. So of course for us, there's no bail. That's not a, it's not a condition. It's not a release condition. But if you are working on a case and you are worried about the defendant getting out, you 
have a right based on your fear for your safety and your fa- and your family's safety to participate in the fixing of the amount of bail. I don't think we ever see that on television. I, I'm surprised because that's really important. And that is an area where we could have an effect, uh, have a way to protect our own safety and our family's safety. And I don't think anybody particularly uh, raises this as an issue or consults us when this comes up. I don't know. Our case is different. So I'm just saying you need to take this into account if you are involved in, in a victim of a crime, that you need to speak up and ask for being um, having your safety considered in the fixing of the amount of bail. Number four, to prevent the disclosure of confidential information or records to the defendant, the defendant's attorney, or any other person acting on behalf of the defendant, which could be used to locate or harass the victim or the victim's family, or which disclose confidential communications made in the course of medical or counseling treatment, or, or which are otherwise privileged or confidential by law. So your information should not be, and you have the right to prevent the disclosure, disclosure of your information or records to the defendant or the defendant's attorney or someone acting on their behalf. Psycho relatives, crazy people. You have the right to prevent that. Again, talk to your prosecutor about this. It's very important if you in any way feel like you are in danger. You could imagine imagine in a domestic abuse situation or where um, there's some other kind of high, high uh, chance of you being harmed by the defendant. This is incredibly important. That's um, number four. Number five, you have the right to refuse an interview, deposition, or discovery request by the defendant, the defendant's attorney, or any other person acting on behalf of the defendant, and to set reasonable conditions on the conduct of any such interview to which the victim consents. Okay, so if you say, okay, I I will do an interview or a deposition or provide discovery, I'm going to tell you how it works for me. You have that right. I think this number five is probably the one that has um, people who are worried about this law the most um, upset, because if you think about that, now we're starting to mess with uh, depositions, interviews, and discovery that absolutely could have a negative impact on a defendant in a way that isn't intended. This is intended to protect the victim, but in and if there if it's preventing the defendant the defense from getting the information they need to put on a defense, I can see how number five could be controversial. Okay, number six, to reasonable notice of and to reasonably confer with the prosecuting agency. Upon request regarding the arrest of the defendant, if known by the prosecutor, the charges filed, the determination whether to extradite the defendant, and upon request to be notified and informed by any pretail disposition of the case. Okay, a lot of words here and their emphasis upon upon request. This has to be done upon request. So you have a read up, read up, easy for you to say, Jen. You have the right to reasonable notice of and to reasonably confer with the prosecuting agency upon request. So you have to ask for it regarding the arrest, the charges, and the determination of extradition and upon request their emphasis to be notified and informed before any pretrial disposition of the case. Ta-da! This is this week in a nutshell. What we, what leaked out which is really interesting because I still say it was an intentional leak by the defense, is that D'Angelo was willing to plea. 
But upon request, and good Lord knows we've really raised our voices here, we want to be notified and informed before there is any pretrial disposition, meaning any sort of um, solution to the case. Disposition meaning resolving it. So anything happening before a trial, we have the right to be notified and informed. And it's upon request, and we are on notice that we are requesting it. So that's number six. Number seven is we have the right to reasonable notice of all public proceedings, including delinquency proceedings, upon request at which the defendant and prosecutor are entitled to be present in all parole or other post-conviction release proceedings and to be present at all such proceedings. Now, this is another big one for us. We do get reasonable notice of all public proceedings. I say we. I, I do not believe we has included everybody. I have gotten them because I believe Sacramento has smiled graciously upon me and I get notice of public proceedings. I do not get the notices that the Sacramento victims get about um, from the district attorney's office. I get notice of public proceedings. Um, and it says here that we also have the right to be present at such proceedings. Well, this is now something that's um, something we talk about all the time as a group is that who gets to be where and do I have the right to be present? According to these rights, we absolutely do have the right to be present. And I believe the exception is unless we are a witness and the judge believes that us listening to the other aspects of the trial would in some way jeopardize our testimony by uh, influencing it or buying it by adding bias or some sort of um, some sort of criteria that would make us less our testimony, it would jeopardize the testimony. I don't know a better way to say that. So five, six, and seven here um, are really key for us as a group of victims. And uh, we're going to make sure, because again, the word upon request is emphasized in this, right? So we're going to make sure that we make that request heard this week. Number eight, we have the right to be heard upon request at any proceeding, including any delinquency proceeding involving a post-arrest release decision, plea, sentencing, post-conviction release decision, or any proceeding in which the right of a victim is at issue. Now, this is interesting because we've never been asked if we wanted to be heard. Of course, we've not requested to be heard. I believe there are some victims who might want to be heard. Um, it's a it's a big trigger to pull, but it looks like in here it's it is an option. And it has to do and it, it says at any proceeding. So it does not qualify the proceeding that goes on to include a proceedings that might not be thought of as um, that as regular like de delinquencies, uh, post arrest decisions, pleas, sentencing and post conviction release decisions. But Right now, according to right number eight, we have the right to be heard upon request at any proceeding. So again, that's a powerful, powerful right that I have to say I honestly did not know was something that we could access. Number nine, we have the right to a speedy trial and a prompt and final conclusion of the case and any related post-judgment proceedings. And I absolutely think this is why the judge said no. We're going to get on with it. You can't have until January of next year. You need to put a stake in the ground and get moving. Thank God he picked May because it's really looking like this defense just hadn't done anything in the last 18 months and is finally getting to work. The quality of that work, I'll discuss with that over, with, with you over margaritas someplace. But right now, 
Um, I, I really feel like the judge ruled in our favor based on this right number nine, right to a speedy trial and a prompt and final conclusion. Okay, number 10. We have the right to provide information to the probation department official conducting a pre-sentence investigation concerning the impact of the offense on the victim and the victim's family and any sentencing recommendations before the sentencing of the defendant. I'm not sure if we would actually even get to the probation department in this trial because um, who I, I'm not sure who's negotiating the uh, pre-sentencing, but in this case, we have a right to have our voices heard, and that's key. And this one doesn't say upon request. This says, number 10, we have a right to provide information to a probation department official. So I don't know if we have to dance on the head of a pin because probation may not do this. I don't know, but you know I'm going to ask. Okay, right number 11, we have a right to receive upon request the pre-sentencing report when available, except for those portions made confidential by law. Makes perfect sense to me, and you can bet we're going to request that. We want to see the pre-sentencing report. Hopefully, we'll be included in that process so it won't be a surprise. My whole goal in all of this is that none of us really have any surprises. I think we're all, we all understand there's a certain amount of flexibility required. This is not a perfect crime. It is by no means going to be a perfect resolution, and everyone set their expectations accordingly. But at the same time, it would really be nice to be included and to work through the process so we aren't surprised. Right number 12, we have the right to be informed upon request of the conviction, sentence, place and time of incarceration, and other disposition of the defendant, the scheduled release date of the defendant, and the release of or the escape by the defendant from custody. Whew, okay. Thank God this isn't television, because in those cases, the defendant can escape always. The bad guy always escapes if it's really key to the storyline. But in this case, what is most relevant for us and what came up this week as that plea was leaked, that the the willingness to plea was leaked, was the idea of being informed of the conviction sentence and place and time of the incarceration and other disposition. A few of the victims have very specifically asked, hey, if he takes a plea, where's his sorry butt, or I'm sorry, where's his skinny butt going to sit? That's for anybody who read the Oxygen article. Where is he going to end up when he is um, does get sentenced? Where will he be on death row if it's, uh, of course, if it's the death penalty? Um, or will it be in level four, level three? There are different levels in California prison. Uh, wh- what would that look like um, if he's, and, and likely from what I've heard from from prison friends is that, and I don't have many, um, <laughs> from prison friends is that, there's not a lot to worry about if he's in any way, even in isolation other than death row, because prisoners have a way of getting to you. So for those of you who are looking for some sort of Wild West justice, that's not off the table at this point. But that you didn't hear that from me. Anyway, now let's go back to our rights. We have the right to restitution. Yeah, start laughing. I'm just going to wait a minute while you're laughing. Restitution. That means uh, get re- getting some sort of financial compensation for what's happening. Well, let me read you the three points because we know D'Angelo doesn't have anything to give anyone. So there's that. But this right to restitution is part A. This is the unequivocal intention of the people of the state of California that all persons who suffer losses as a result of criminal activity shall have the right to seek and secure restitution from the persons convicted of the crimes causing the losses they suffer. 
Interestingly enough, fun fact, the Smith children, I guess me, an adult, but the Smith, we were the Smith children relative to my dad. Um, We filed a lawsuit back in 1980, 80, I think it was 80. I know because I had to take the lead on that as the adult child. uh, That was, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was kind of a a lawsuit in absentia of of the criminal so that if we did have a conviction in the future, we could sue them for uh, for our loss for our loss sue them for money. Um, I guess that suit. I called the attorney who filed it, and I suppose after he got done laughing, told me, "No, it's too late. It's too long ago. I don't know how this works. It's actually something I'm going to pursue when I'm down in Ventura." But I know we filed for the suit, and we paid for that filing of that suit. So um, even before this victim. Uh, victims' rights law was passed, we were already pursuing that. But that's because, you know, we were filthy with lawyers. Everybody knew what we should do. So we did that. Okay, that was point A. Point B, restitution shall be ordered from the convicted wrongdoer in every case, regardless of the sentence or disposition imposed in which a crime victim suffers a loss. That says, so that says restitution shall be ordered. And then there's C, all monetary payments, monies, and property collected from any person who has been ordered to make restitution shall first be applied to pay the amounts ordered as restitution to the victim. Now that is interesting. Does that mean it doesn't get paid to the state? Because you know, D'Angelo is going to owe the state or Sacramento County in particular, a lot of money. Um, I, he'll also owe the state a lot of money for pursuing his crimes. He's uh, he spent everybody's money, everybody's money. I I hate to even think of the dollar amount. If we all added up all the money, the property damage, the therapy, the lawyers, the filings, the health, the the rehabs, every darn thing all of us have paid as a group, all of us who have been, uh, even the therapists that were required for the Sacramento County and the other counties were just terrorized by this man. And I know a lot of you were terrified of him and do have post-traumatic stress from this. Can you imagine the money we have spent, what he cost us as as humanity in this state for all of his crimes? Okay, I don't put a number on that, but it's just, wow, it can blow your mind. So right number 14, we have the right to the prompt return of property when no longer needed as evidence. So this one was actually, um, it still is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because there is still some of my dad's stuff, some stuff that I actually kind of care about that is in evidence, in the evidence locker in Ventura. And I talked to them about it after D'Angelo was arrested because I thought, well, maybe now we could get it back. Like, do they really need it now that we know we have them on DNA? Do you really need this evidence? But we still don't have it back. And I'm not sure. Well, I suspect now, probably in the next couple of years, we'll get it back. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to laugh about prompt return, but in this case, yeah, I guess it's as prompt as it could be because it's, it's a prompt return when it is no longer needed as evidence. So any of you guys out there wondering where, when you get your stuff back, it has to no longer be needed as evidence. Right 15 is to be informed, is the right to be informed of all parole procedures, to participate in the parole process, to provide information to the parole authority, to be considered before the parole of the offender, and to be notified upon request of the parole or other release of the offender. So this, of course, isn't going to work in our case, but this is so important for all of you who have offenders who are going to be paroled. You have a right to that information, but they do throw in that emphasis of upon request. So I want you to be active and I want you to make your voice heard, okay? That's really important. Speak up and tell 
people, this is what you want. In this case, specifically tell the parole um, department of parole or whoever it is, however parole works, the parole authority, they call it in here. Make sure, and I would put it in writing and I would make sure that they receive that document so that you know that you want to be notified if there's any information about the parole procedures that will affect you. Number 16, you have the, you ha you have the right to have the safety of the victim the victim's family and the general public considered before any parole or other judgment, post-judgment release decision is made. So uh, you saw this on Frazier, if you're not, if you're a hundred years old, because Marty had to go back and, and talk to the, talk, go talk to the parole board about the guy who shot him. Um, that was Frazier's dad. How's that for anecdotal? For anybody who watched TV in this millennium. <laughs> so, ah, wait, I think Frazier crossed over into this millennium. I'm not that old. Anyway, you have the right to have your safety considered and your family's safety considered before any parole. And this does not say upon request, but you're still going to need to fight for your rights. We always have to fight for our rights. So I want you to know this is something that you have the right to. Please, your safety matters. So if it's if you're in jeopardy, if you feel like you're going to be in danger or in jeopardy before someone's paroled, speak up. Make sure your voice is heard. And then number 17, our final right is to be informed of these rights enumerated in paragraphs 1 through 16, which is interesting because I don't believe any of us, with a couple of exceptions, were ever informed of these rights until this last week. Suddenly, um, well, actually, the first time we heard that we started seeing Mar Marcy's Law come up was when we got the letters from the defense and we started asking questions. So that, that's been in about the last four weeks where we started to, uh, we've been bumping into each other, asking each other questions about what are our rights and what what do we, you know, how do, how do we get to know where we stand in this whole process? Well, now Marcy's Rights is, is what everybody's finally pointed us to. And um, now, apparently, if you are a victim, you get a little, they, the police carry around a little card or something that tells you what your rights are. Okay, so as I looked through this, I'll take a deep breath because that's the rights. There's 17 of them. Uh, you can Google it and say Marcy's Law in California, and you can look these up. I'm gonna, I, I'm hoping I can get the stuff I'm using on my blog, but it's just going to take me a little bit of time because I, I want to do it in a decent way. So you can always come to the blog and look up these um, podcasts after, but I'm going to, there's going to be a delay because there's just only me, one person, and I got to do this as fast as I can when I can. Anyway, for me, what's missing from this list is the victim's right to information that's been shared with other victims to the extent that there's no legal reason for selectively sharing that information. So what I mean is if you're going to tell person A victim A something, you have the obligation to tell victims B through Z that same information. I don't care who they are. If they are considered a victim, they, we all should have the same information at the same time. Now, I can absolutely understand holding back information from all of us if it pertains to testifying or something uh, deeply personal about an individual case, but that is not something that all of us would need to know. It, it just makes sense. We wouldn't all need to know that. But it does not include notifying selective victims of potentially powerful information because a district attorney is playing politics. And now I'm referring to why Mr. Harrington knew information before everybody else. And it absolutely looked, it be, looked like it was because his district attorney out of Orange County was being political. And in fact, as you'll read those blogs, you'll see there were many political things that happened in those 48 hours. Um, 
And so I I have a contact in the California State Assembly, and I'm going to find out how hard it is to amend this Bill of Rights, because I would like to amend it in in this way so future victims don't have to go through what we are experiencing. And that's basically turning victims into a hierarchy. I don't believe victims have a hierarchy. A victim is a victim. So in the words of Dr. Seuss, and I have my little Jen Carroll modification, a victim's a victim no matter how small, a very small victim will not have to suffer if we all make ourselves heard. It never rhymed. I don't know why it didn't rhyme, but I love Horton. Here's a who. And um, I really do think a victim is a victim. And it doesn't matter if um, if he broke your window and got away, or if he raped you three times, or if he killed your mom and dad, or your stepmom and dad. A victim is a victim, no matter how small. And small is probably the wrong word, but that's the quote. So I'm just going to use it. So let's take just a minute before I wrap up here and talk about why the ACLU opposes Marcy's Law as it's working away across the nation. This I didn't even realize this has happened, but some states have adopted Marcy's Law, but uh, and other states haven't because their state legislatures require approval before they can make a constitution amend their state constitution. Okay, so in California and some states you can vote on something before the legislature agrees or has a chance to look at it. That's our initiative process that puts things on the ballot as a proposition and it has its pros and cons as we discussed. And I'm pretty sure if you ever want to learn about this, you just buy my mom some drinks and she's going to tell you the secrets. But it'll kind of take the rose color out of your glasses because don't we all know it's about politics and money. So, uh, okay, I'll let go of that and get back to the why Jeannie Ruska, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the political director at the ACLU wrote this article in May of 2018 explaining the downside of this kind of law. And it's important for us to hear this because we need to take responsibility for both the victims and defendants. The reality is someone we love could be accused of something and we need to know how to support them and we need to understand what the issues are. So I'm going to read you some of the highlights and if you'd like to see the whole thing, you can Google victims' rights Proposals like Marcy's Law Undermine Due Process. That's the name of the article. Um, and Jeannie's last name is H-R-U-S-K-A. So you should be able to find this article. But here are a few of the highlights that um, bring to light what the issues are when you look at this from a defendant's point of view. And, and I think that's fair. Marcy's Law is premised on the notion that victims should have equal rights to defendants. That's really important. That that first statement's really important. That's the premise. The opening salvo is a seductive appeal to one's sense of fairness. However, the notion that victims' rights can be equated to the rights of the accused is a fallacy. It ignores the very different purpose these two rights, sets of rights, reserve. All right, so you got that? She's saying you can't do this tit for tat that victims and defendants have the same rights. And that makes sense because as victims, you know, we're, we're represented by prosecutors who are working for the people. Um, victims should have rights, but it doesn't mean that they should be equal to the defendants. That's that's not necessarily the same thing. Defendants really do need important, important rights lest you are wrongfully accused. And that's the hat you need to wear when you consider this. Let me go on with her article. The U.S. Constitution and all 50 state constitutions guarantee defendants' rights because they are rights against the state, not because they are valued more by society than victims. Defendants' rights only apply when the state is attempting to deprive the accused, not the victim, of life, 
liberty, or property. They serve as essential checks, uh, checks against government abuse, preventing the government from arresting and imprisoning anyone for any reason at any time. Y'all know this. That's how our laws work. That's why we have a really great system. You have the right to a trial and you have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. She goes on. Victims' rights are not rights against the state. Instead, they are rights against another individual. The Marcy's Law formula includes the rights to restitution, to reasonable protection, and to refuse depositions and discovery requests, all of which are enforced against the defendant. Such rights do nothing to check the power of government. In fact, many provisions in Marcy's Law could actually strengthen the state's hand against a defendant, undermining a bedrock principle of our legal system, the presumption of innocence. Oh, I got chills. That is the bedrock of our legal system, the presumption of innocence. She explains, this, further, this risk further underscores one of the overarching concerns about Marcy's Law. It pits victims' rights against defendants' rights. Creating such a conflict means that defendants' rights may lose in certain, certain circumstances. This results, accepts the defendants' rights against the state will be weakened or unenforced in some cases, potentially at a significant cost to constitutional due process. In other words, the chances that an innocent person could be convicted of a crime they did not commit could potentially increase. The proponents of Marcy's Law may not intend for this outcome, but nothing in their formula prevents it. So she goes on to explain how the law is too expansive and ambiguous, which is really her point, is that she's not saying that victims don't have rights, and she's not saying some of these rights are completely legit, but the ones that pit us against the defendant such that the defendant can't get a fair trial, that's where the gray area is, and that's the danger we risk of being too law and order and too focused on the victim and not enough focused on the presumption of innocence. Anytime we give something up, that that impairs our the the our innate right to the presumption of of innocence, I believe as a society we're getting ourselves in trouble. So I'm just offering this up because I want you to think about this. She concludes her argument with the following, and I think it's important because she's not saying that we shouldn't have rights. Instead, she's looking for balance and clarity. Clarity, and she really doesn't want to pit victims against defendants. That's not the way this should work. She cautions that amending a state constitution is a really big deal and should be done with consideration. So here's her conclusion. To oppose Marcy's law is not to oppose victims' rights. Rather, it is to oppose the highly problematic formula that is Marcy's law. There are many ways that states could better support crime victims, additional resources for services, more education about existing victims' rights, and improvements to statutory rights. It is false advertising to suggest that the only or best option is through a one-size-fits-all constitutional amendment. We should set the highest of bars for constitutional amendments. Once language is added to a state constitution, it is etched in stone. This is all the more so when talking about the U.S. Constitution. Constitutions are not science labs, and states should be leery of experimenting with Marcy's Law. She does a great job. Her her it's a very easy to understand argument set of arguments. It points out those rights that could um, really we could look at more closely and decide if we need to come first or if your right your presumption of innocence should come first. God forbid it's someone you know who's being accused of something. You could bet you'd flip right over and be on that side the minute someone you loved was accused. So 
I know it's easy to become emotional about this stuff. It's attached to pain and vulnerability. And even people who like me who think they've got this, we don't. The feels still get me every time. And that's why I think when we write laws, we need to hear many voices, not just those of us close to it, but many voices to make sure that what we think we want to have happen is really the right thing. In fact, until I did the research today, I didn't realize the California DNA law, the law we talked about earlier, was amended in 2009 to allow law enforcement to take DNA from suspects who have been arrested for a felony, not just convicted felons. In fact, the state is not required to act upon a request. This is why it's a big deal. Sorry, let me just. The state is not required to act upon a request for removal of information from an innocent individual. In the law, we said the state doesn't have to take it out of the database if they're innocent. What? Furthermore, we need to accept that DNA is more than a fingerprint and that human genes contain a wealth of information that can be used for many purposes. So let's say today it's for crimes. I'm all there. I want to find the serial rapist. I want to know which humans are really taking advantage of us. I, I'm with you on this DNA, but tomorrow it could be what determines who qualifies for a novel coronavirus test or the vaccine. <sighs> From my point of view, we're on a slippery slope and we owe it to ourselves and our children to decide where we want to draw the line. Ha! Talk about bringing down the room. Okay, I'm, that's food for your thoughts there. With that, I wish you a thoughtful, safe, and healthy Sunday night, and I will have more for you very soon. Thanks for listening. Your daylight there. Seasons crying.